Would you take your Bibles with me and open to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 7. Luke, chapter 7. You may remember, if you've been with us for a while, we were working our way through the Gospel of Luke and, and worked through the first six chapters, ending the first Sunday of July. Actually, was our last Sunday, I believe, in Luke's Gospel, maybe the last Sunday of June. And then I said we would pick up again. Well, now we're picking up again in chapter 7. And uh, my text this morning is all of chapter 7. Now, if you've read chapter 7, you know there are many verses, 50 of them, and the verses feel long as well. And so, uh, for the public reading of God's Word prior to the sermon, I I just want to pick up right in the middle of our text, in verse 28, right in the middle of a story where Jesus is talking about John the Baptist. And we'll begin reading in verse 28. I'll read to the end of the chapter, and then throughout the sermon, we'll, we'll look at the rest of the text as well. And I want to ask you one more time, if you're able, if you would stand, so that we might honor the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. Beginning in Luke chapter 7, verse 28, which if you have one of the Red Bibles, that's 864. Hear the reading of God's word. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. When all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too, they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by Him. To what then shall I compare the people of this generation, and what are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another. We play the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sing a dirge, and you did not weep. For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say he has a demon. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by all her children. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner When she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with ointment. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is, who is touching him, for she is a sinner." Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, Her sins, which are many, are forgiven. 
for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Would you remain standing as we pray? Father, would you use your word now powerfully as it is proclaimed? Would you enable the preaching of your word to be a demonstration of the Spirit of God working in power so that our faith might not rest in any man but in the one who is able to raise the dead? And Father, would you do, would you do for us what we need you to do for us? We uh, find ourselves uh, unable to transform our own hearts. It's, it's a struggle with our own desires. Would you transform our hearts? Would you change our desires? Would you give us greater love for the one who has forgiven us so much? And would you do that through the preaching of your word, we ask in Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. David McCullough opens his book on the Wright brothers by focusing on a photograph of the two men. He talks about the photograph and using it, he describes their appearance, their height, their build. And then interestingly, he writes this, to judge by the expressions on their faces, they had little, if any, sense of humor, which was hardly the case. But what is most uncharacteristic about the pose is that they sit doing nothing at all, something they almost never succumb to. Now, I've never written a book like David McCullough has here, and he's a two-time Pulitzer Prize-winning author, so who am I to judge? But I find it a bit interesting that McCullough, of all the myriad of ways he could have begun his book on Wilbur and Orville Wright, decides to hold up a photograph and say, now look at this, the brothers are nothing like that. To say, if you looked at this photograph and from there decided you wanted to understand who they were, you are going to be surprised because they're very different. It's as if McCullough is saying at the beginning of his book, now what I'm going to do is launch into all of the surprising and astonishing details of their lives that you probably didn't know about, weren't aware of, and will be taken back by. But I think actually Luke does something similar in the seventh chapter of his gospel. We know from the opening verses of Luke's gospel, that he arranges his gospel very carefully. In fact, in the opening verses, he describes his writing of his gospel as, in verse 3 of chapter 1, an orderly account. He's, he's ordered his gospel, what he's writing about, and how he's pairing stories together. He's done it very carefully in a very orderly way. Now, that doesn't mean, we've already seen this, that doesn't mean he's doing it chronologically. He's not starting with the first story and then going to the next and the one that maybe happened after that one and so on and so forth. It seems rather that he's arranging oftentimes his stories thematically around a certain theme, a certain idea, and he, he works in this way to, to craft these things together to send a certain message. 
And by the time you get to chapter 7, he takes a number of stories and he weaves them all together. And it seems that the theme that holds these stories together is the surprising, astonishing, overwhelming realities of who Jesus is, of what he does, of how people respond to him. It's as if in every section we find ourselves saying, I didn't expect that. Or I'm taken back by that. That's an overwhelming reality. Maybe that's even greater than I ever realized. And as Luke takes these surprising stories and holds them together, he then gives us, which is the aim of his gospel, an ever clearer picture of who Jesus is. So what I want to do this morning is simply walk through this chapter in five sections. And what I'll do in each section is is label it with something that is unexpected, astonishing, overwhelming, unlikely of the sorts. And then uh, I want to take that reality and try to apply it to us, all the while hoping that we are seeing a clearer picture of who our Savior is. So as we look at the first story here in verses 1 through 10, we can title this section, Unlikely Faith. Unlikely Faith. The text begins with Luke telling us of a Roman centurion who had a servant who was sick. We read in verse 2, now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death and was highly valued by him. A Roman centurion would be a commander in the Roman army responsible for about a hundred soldiers. And We might anticipate, because we know this is true, the Romans could have been, they were a very ruthless people at times. I mean, this would have been a a painful reality for the Jews to live under, in many places, the oppressive Roman government. So already, when we hear of a Roman centurion, we might right off the bat think, oh, good grief, this is not going to be a good guy. And yet, in verse 2, this unexpected reality He has a servant who is sick and near death, and he values him. He doesn't think of him as worthless and and disregard any kind of dignity for the man's life. He, He values him. Not only that, but we might say, well, if that's not the case, then then surely he has a strained relationship with the Jews. I mean, the Jews were constantly trying to overthrow Roman rule and come up against it. This is ultimately what leads to the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. They do not function well under Roman rule. So you would expect this then to be an antagonistic relationship between the Roman centurion and the Jewish people. And yet, we read in verses 3 through 5, when the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. When they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, he, about the Roman centurion, he is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation. And he is the one who built us our synagogue. We don't know now what the Roman centurion's motivation was for building the synagogue, maybe just to keep peace, to make government a bit easier. Maybe he's just a generous and kind man. But regardless, the Jews here valued him so much, they want Jesus. They're eager for Jesus to come and heal his servant. And so as they say this to Jesus, Jesus decides that he's going to come and he's going to do it. So he begins making his way to the centurion's house. But it's while he's on his way that we find the most unlikely element about this centurion's life. 
As he's going, we're told that the centurion sends people out to meet Jesus and send him one more message. We read in verse 6, and Jesus went with them. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man set under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes. To another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. And turning to the crowd that followed him, said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. The man sends the message to Jesus, Jesus, you don't even need to come to my house. I'm not worthy to have you in my house. Plus, I understand who you are. I'm a man, he says, under authority. What the centurion was saying was, when I speak, people understand that my words carry the weight of Roman rule behind them. When, when I speak, I speak with the full authority of the emperor. You cannot defy what I say and think you're going to be fine with the emperor because I speak in his power. I'm under authority, and when I speak, people do what I say. Likewise, the centurion is saying to Jesus, and I understand that you function with the very power of God. So I'm not worthy to have you under my roof. In fact, you can merely speak and it will be done. And Jesus' response is to marvel. There's only one other time in the New Testament, we read of Jesus marveling. And that other occasion, he marvels at a people's unbelief. On this occasion, he marvels at the man's faith, saying, I tell you, and even in Israel have I not found such faith. Now, now if we were to ask this question, if you were to scour the New Testament and say, who is it whose faith would be most impressive to Jesus? We would probably anticipate it being someone, an Israelite, who was steeped in the Old Testament, who, who was looking for the Messiah, whom when Jesus showed up exercised such faith in Jesus' ministry that he marveled at them. But that's not the case. You find the faith that Jesus marvels at coming from a Roman centurion who could have been well unaware of the Old Testament, but has come to realize who Jesus is. And when Jesus then heals the man by his word, they marvel. Uh, now, when we realize this unlikely faith, I think one of the benefits a story like this has is it, it pushes on us in ways, it forces us to admit, I think, things that we can presume wrongly. Just as we might look and say, well, if we didn't know the story, I would have not anticipated a Roman centurion expressing the kind of faith in Jesus that he would marvel at. Isn't it also true in our lives that we have people about whom we think they are unlikely converts? Don't we have people in our lives that sometimes we think, I can't imagine them coming to know Christ as Lord? Maybe individuals in our life for whom we've grown a bit faithless in praying for because it feels so unlikely. And yet, this story, I think, both reminds us that 
faith can come from unlikely sources, but it also reminds us that Jesus is the one who works miracles. No matter how any of us have come to faith, whether it was hearing the gospel in our home from believing parents and then coming to faith or coming to faith later on in life, every time any of us comes to faith in Christ, it is because the Lord has done a miracle of taking us who are dead in our sins and giving us life. As St. Corinthians says, just as God spoke in the beginning and said, let light shine out of darkness, so He has shown light into our hearts where there was only death, and He gives life new creation. And so, one of the things I think this story should do for us is say, do not grow weary in evangelizing your neighbor or coworker or family member. Do not grow weary in praying for that person whom you say, it seems to me unlikely that they would come to faith. Because this is what the Lord does, bringing faith, even in the lives of those for whom we think it is quite unlikely. Now, after in verses 1 through 10, we see unlikely faith. In verses 11 through 17, we see astonishing compassion and power. Astonishing compassion and power. The second story here is actually quite unlike the first. In in the first story, Jesus shows his authority over sickness. In the second story, he's going to show his authority over death. In that way, they're similar. But the similarities mostly end there. If you take the story in verses 1 through 10, Jesus dealt with an impressive figure, a Roman centurion, an impressive figure who was sending a group to ask Jesus to do something. The Jews are coming, and then the text says they earnestly begged him, right? They, They were pleading with him to do something. And then Jesus heals this man from a distance, merely speaking the word, and his servant is healed. In verses 11 through 17, what we're going to find is all of those elements are turned on their head. No longer do we have Jesus dealing with an impressive figure in this story. In verses 11 through 17, he deals with a destitute woman. You don't have crowds pleading and begging with Jesus to do something. No one even asks him to perform a miracle. And nor do you have Jesus staying at a distance, merely speaking and the healing occurs, but you have Jesus getting his hands dirty, if you will, touching something that was going to make a normal person, unclean. The story goes, Jesus is approaching a town called Nain. And as he's approaching the town, he sees a multitude of people walking out. And a man is being carried um, there on on a bier, a structure that would support something like a coffin. A dead man is there being carried out. And as the crowd is coming out, they're actually accompanying a woman. And this woman isn't simply now a woman who has lost her son. Luke says that she is a widow. Now, that puts her in a really tough place at this time and place in world history. During this time and in this culture, to lose your husband and to lose your, he says, her only son, putting her in a place where she's lost every means to be provided for, every means to be cared for. And as Jesus sees the crowd coming by, he has compassion and acts. We read in verses 13 through 15, And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her, and said to her, Do not weep. Then he came up and touched the bier, and the bears stood still. And he said to the dead man, 
Young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man set up and began to speak. And Jesus gave him to his mother. Then Luke goes on to say, Fear seized them all. They glorified God, saying, A great prophet has risen among us, and God has visited us. And this report spread throughout Judea and the surrounding country. We see two elements here clearly brought to the surface in this encounter with the woman, this widow who had lost her only son. One, we see Jesus' astonishing power, don't we? Jesus' power is shown in a number of ways. One, when he touches the beer, this, this stand that would have supported the dead man's body, that should have made Jesus unclean, according to Old Testament law. But one of the things that you regularly see in the Gospels is that when Jesus touches something that should make him unclean, like touching a leper, instead of Jesus being contaminated, it's his cleanliness that is spread. The other person becomes clean. Uh, they become healed. They become well. In this occasion, touching the, the, this, this thing contaminated with a dead body should have made Jesus unclean. Instead, Jesus not only spreads his cleanliness, he spreads his life. And the man is given life. The dead man comes back. Jesus has authority even over death. But we also see, and this may even be more astonishing for us, Jesus' astonishing compassion. No one says anything to him. No one is saying to Jesus as he walks by, hey, hey, let us tell you about this woman. She's lost her husband. She's lost her only son. Uh, no one is pleading with Jesus, please do something about this. Jesus simply sees the scene unfolding, recognizes what's going on, and compassion is drawn out so that he cares for this woman. Now, the reason this is so astounding it's because of who Jesus is. Think of who he, he is, we profess, Jesus is God the Son incarnate. He is God the Son who took on flesh and lived among us, who lived and died and was raised for us and for our salvation. So as God the Son, He has always reigned over all. As God the Son, the Scripture tells us He is the one through whom all things have been made. He is the one for whom all things have come into being. So not only is He the one who created all things, He's the one who owns all things. He's the one who reigns over all things. The Scripture tells us that He upholds the universe by the word of His power. Every one of us, as we sit in the service, every time our hearts beat, it's because God, the Son, is enabling that to happen holding the universe together by the word of his power. And according to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11, that one, God the Son, is directing all things after the counsel of his own will. Everything that happens in the universe, nothing is outside of his power and reign and control, but rather is being directed by his will. He knows everything that could happen just by knowing his own power. He knows everything that will happen because he knows his own will, and he is the one who reigns. Now, when you paint that picture, that's who God the Son is, and then you take us, you would think, you might anticipate that the response is, we need to stoically trust the one who is in control, right? We just need to stoically just, just get rid of all Emotion, pain, hurt, right? Just stoically, God, you're in control. 
We're just walking forward. But what you get here is not a picture of our God saying to us, I want you to stoically trust me. Yes, trust me. But you get a God here who shows us his compassion. I mean, God the Son incarnate looks at this woman and exercises compassion. In the book of Hebrews, we're actually told that Jesus is able to sympathize with us in our weaknesses. And what is the, what is the end result of that? The author of Hebrews says, therefore, since we have a high priest who's able to sympathize with us, to exercise his compassion and his care toward us in our weaknesses, therefore let us draw near to God with confidence so that we might receive mercy and grace in our time of need. Our Lord's response to us is not, stand at a distance and trust me. His response is, trust me and come to me because I will show you my compassion. I will show you my care. I want to pour out on you mercy and grace in your time of need. Yes, trust me, but know that I'm with you and I care for you. Isn't this what Peter tells us? Cast our cares on him. Why? Because he cares for us. Every need you have, even the smallest of your needs, when you come to the Lord, you can know that you have one interceding for you who has compassion. Astonishing compassion and power. Third, we see in verses 18 through 23, an unexpected ministry an unexpected ministry. The next story itself is one we probably don't expect to take place. The last time we saw John the Baptist, he was so bold in his preaching, it was astounding. He was preaching so boldly, calling everyone to repentance, that even Herod the Tetrarch, he said, you too, you need to repent. You've taken Herodias, your, your brother's wife, and he calls him to repent. I mean, this is a bold preacher. He knows Jesus is the Messiah. He's telling everyone to follow him, everyone to repent, to get ready to follow the Christ. And he's so bold that Herod the Tetrarch takes him and has him locked up in prison. At this point, as you get ready then for Luke chapter 7, verse 18, we think if we know anything about John, he is, he is bold in his faith in the Messiah. And yet, here's what we read in verses 18 through 20. The disciples of John reported all these things to him, and John, calling two of his disciples, said to him, uh, calling two of his disciples, sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? What? Right, right, isn't there a response? Wait, what's going on with John? How's he lost this boldness? And why, why is he having this question? Why is he sending a group to Jesus saying, are you really the Christ? Are you the one who was promised? Are you the one who was to come? Or should we look for another? Why would John be having these questions? Luke doesn't tell us, but I think we can make a pretty good guess. If you go back to John's preaching, which, which is pretty easy for us, it's over in chapter 3, of Luke's gospel. If you go back to chapter 3 and look at John's preaching, let me just give you a taste. In fact, I'm going to ask you a question before I read these two verses to you. 
What element is John sure that God is going to bring as he comes to his people? Okay, that's the question we're holding our head. What element are we certain that John is certain about as God comes to his people and the Messiah? Here's the element he's going to bring. Chapter 3, verse 7. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. Or verse 9, even now the axe is laid at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. That was John's preaching. Flee from the wrath to come. Even now, you're like a tree and the axe is laid at the root of the tree. God is getting ready to cut that down and throw it into the fire. The element that you know that John was certain about when the Christ comes, this is the element he's bringing, is judgment, isn't it? The wrath of God. That was his whole preaching. Flee. Wrath's coming. You're about to get in trouble. Now, why? Why did John have that idea that when the Messiah comes, there will be a coming of wrath? Well, it's probably because of a text like Isaiah 61. Let me just read to you what Isaiah 61 says. And, and Isaiah 35 is actually very common in the same way. Speaking of the coming of the Christ, of the Messiah, Isaiah 61 says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, and, note this last part, the day of the vengeance of our God. Now, again, Isaiah 35 speaks of the same thing, the vengeance of our God. So, when you look at these Old Testament images of the coming of the Christ, the Christ will come and He will heal, and He will preach the gospel to the poor, and He will free those who are enslaved. He will, he will do all of these glorious things, and He will bring God's judgment. And yet, John was out there preaching, saying, the Messiah's come. It's Jesus of Nazareth. That's the God-man. That's the Christ. That's the one. Flee from the wrath to come. John now is sitting in prison. And one of Jesus' clear enemies, Herod the Tetrarch, who's rebelling against God in every way you can imagine is reigning over John. And all of a sudden, John's looking around at those prison walls going, this doesn't look like I thought the way it would look. This doesn't look like the day of the vengeance of our God. If this is it, his enemies might win, right? So it seems then that John is looking around going, uh, this doesn't look like what I thought it would look like. Now, one reason we shouldn't be surprised by that is because of what Jesus does. Do you remember when Jesus' ministry began? According to Luke chapter 4, Jesus walked into a synagogue one day, and he had someone, the attendant, hand him a scroll of the book of Isaiah. And he opened the scroll to Isaiah 61, and he began reading. And according to Luke chapter 4, verse 18, he read, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, 
because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind and to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And we're ready for it, right? And the day of the vengeance of our God. That's what the text says. But Luke tells us in chapter 4, verse 20, and he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down saying, today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Interestingly, Jesus stopped right short of reading that phrase, and the day of the vengeance of our God. You see, what John, no doubt, and many others anticipated happening is if the Old Testament spoke about the Messiah coming and bringing salvation and blessing to His people and judgment to His enemies, they thought it must occur in one moment, in one event. Here comes the Messiah, here comes salvation, here comes judgment. Instead, in an unexpected way, the Messiah comes and brings salvation. When He comes back a second time, He will bring judgment. Right now, He's giving a time of patience so that those who have not repented of their sins and bowed the knee to Jesus Christ in faith can do so because He's long-suffering, allowing us time to repent if we've not bowed the knee to Christ. What John sees is an unexpected ministry, delayed. What, what John thought would happen in one coming is happening too. Interestingly, then, Jesus' response to him in chapter 7, verses 22 and 23, and He answered John's disciples, go and tell John what you've seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, dead are raised up, the poor have the good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. In other words, what Jesus says is, go tell John that you see everything that Isaiah 35 and Isaiah 61 were talking about. You see the works of the Christ being fulfilled. What God has promised, when God said, I'm going to come to my people, and when I come to my people, these are the things I will do. Jesus says, tell John, you see those things. And... Tell him, blessed is the one who is not offended, or blessed is the one who has not stumbled, or blessed is the one who is not tripped up by this. What he's saying is, tell John, keep believing. Even though I'm not doing things in the way he expected them to be done, tell him to trust me. Tell him to believe. Brothers and sisters, isn't this a call to us? We who rightly confess all the time God sits in the heavens and does whatever He pleases. He's in control. Can't we honestly say, though, in our lives, there are many times when we look out and we go, God, I did not expect you to do this. I didn't expect my life to turn out this way. Maybe the person who is single and wish they were married, I expected I would be married by now. I expected I would have children by now. I would expect my children to be more obedient. I expected I would have a better job. I expected my health might carry on a little bit beyond my 30s. And in those moments, the Lord says to us, you're not wrong to recognize that I'm in control. Just as He's saying, John, you're not wrong to think I'm the Messiah, but trust me. Don't stumble. Keep believing. Trust me and believe. An unexpected ministry is followed then in verses 24 through 28 by our overwhelming privilege. 
I was going to write an overwhelming privilege that would seem to fit better with every other thing I've done so far in the sermon, but I wanted to write our overwhelming privilege because this text actually speaks about us specifically. After John's messengers left, Jesus used the opportunity to talk about John. He asked them in verses 24 through 27, who did they come out to see when they went out to be baptized by John? Verse 24, when John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury are in king's courts. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes. And I tell you, and more than a prophet, this is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Now, let's just process what Jesus has said so far. Jesus asked them, when you went out to be baptized by John, did you, did you think that John was a reed shaken by the wind, someone that's just kind of going with where the winds go? Is the culture accepting this or accepting that? No, no, John's nothing like that. He's going to preach the truth. Do you think he'd be all dapper, dressed up nice? No, that's not John. John, his wardrobe's terrible, right? In some sense. No, no, he's not that. Did you go out to see a prophet? Yeah, you did. He's that, and he's more. He's actually the prophet who is a fulfillment of Isaiah 40, uh, the fulfillment of uh, Isaiah's words, behold, I send, or excuse me, of uh, Malachi's words, behold, I send my messenger uh, before your face who will prepare your way before you. Jesus says, John is the one that God sent to prepare the people for his coming to them. But then Jesus makes this statement, I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Now, that's interesting. I think if I were to ask you, leading up to the ministry of Jesus, not counting Jesus, but when you get to the point that Jesus steps onto the scene, and I were to ask you, think about all the saints in the Bible, all the way up to the point of Jesus' public ministry, and I want you to list them. Who do you think is the greatest among them? My guess is, if we didn't know this text, not many, if any of us, would list John the Baptist. What do you think about Abraham, uh, the one through whom God raised up his people Israel? Or Moses, whom God leads to, uses to lead Israel out of Egypt through the Red Sea? Or think about David, God's great king who slays Goliath and leads his people in battle after battle. Uh, Isaiah, the prophet, for whom we have 66 chapters of prophecy from him. Or Elijah or Elisha, who work amazing miracles. I mean, Elijah's carried up to heaven in a chariot of fire. Right? You would be tempted to, to name any of them. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. Among all of them, to the point of John the Baptist's birth, none is greater than John the Baptist, born of woman. Why? What's so impressive about John? We already cleared he's not a great dresser, right? What's so great about John is that Jesus is saying he is the messenger who prepares the way. In other words, here's why John is so great. He had an amazing privilege. Those who came before John, Abraham, Moses, David, Isaiah, Elijah, Elisha, so on and so forth, all of them were saying... The Christ is coming. The Christ is coming. The Christ is coming. And John says, 
and there he is. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And Jesus says, that's why he's so great. Because he had the privilege of introducing me. Do you see how this text speaks, yes, greatly of John? Oh, but it speaks ever, however, more greatly of Jesus, doesn't it? Because he is God coming to his people. But he doesn't stop there. Jesus this says something crazy. If you were impressed by John being greater than all of those people, listen to how he finishes verse 28. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Yet, the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. In other words, Jesus is saying, but when you get on the other side of my death and my resurrection, my ascension and reigning at the right hand of God, my pouring out my spirit on my people, and you take the least one of them, they're greater than John. Whoa. Because that's us, right? You and me. Don't be so impressed by Abraham or Moses or David or Isaiah or Elijah or Elisha or even John the Baptist. Because Jesus says, you're greater. Well, if John's greatness was being able to say, there he is, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, what makes us so great? It's because we can say even more than John. We can say, yes, and that one who is the God-man lived a perfect life and died on the cross for our sins died on the cross to pay the penalty for anyone who would believe in him. He then walked out of the tomb alive on Easter Sunday morning so that if you repent of your sins and place your faith in him, you can have forgiveness of sins, eternal life, follow him as your Lord, and one day when he returns and executes judgment on his enemies, he will also take you with him and save you for his own. We can bear witness to Christ in a way that's even clearer than John could with the Spirit indwelling us as we do it. Brothers and sisters, if John is the greatest born of woman because he has this unique privilege of saying, there he is, what an amazing, overwhelming privilege we have to be able to testify to others who do not know Christ. Here's who he is. Let me tell you about the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. We should be a people who are overwhelmed at the privilege we have testify to Jesus Christ. And then finally, number five, in our last story, verses 29 through 50, surprising forgiveness and transformation. Surprising forgiveness and transformation. In this last section, really almost the last half of our chapter, Luke gives us a contrast First, we see the Pharisees. This is a group of people who did very religious things, but actually did not believe and trust in Jesus. They weren't repentant. In fact, uh, Luke begins for us by telling us in verse 29 uh, that after Jesus says in verse 28, even the least in the kingdom of God's greater than he, he says in verse 29, when all the people heard this and the tax collectors too, they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But, verse 30, the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by Him. 
Now, now, why is that note important, that these had not been baptized by John? Well, it's because when John was baptizing, he was baptizing with a baptism of repentance, right? So, when individuals were baptized, what they were doing is they were professing publicly, I've repented of my sins. I've recognized myself as a sinner in need and the grace and mercy of God. Well, that's not who the Pharisees were. They didn't recognize themselves as sinners in need of the grace and mercy of God, and therefore they abstained from John's baptism. They wanted nothing to do with it. So first, Jesus condemns them. He, he notes that, that there's nothing that satisfies them. We read this text earlier, but, but you'll remember, perhaps from the reading, Jesus says that they are like children playing in the street who now start complaining because as the children are playing, they say, but we played the flute and you weren't willing to dance. We sing a dirge and you weren't willing to mourn. You're not willing to play the game with us right. No matter what we do, nothing satisfies you. Jesus says that's what the Pharisees are like. They don't believe. They didn't believe John. Well, somebody might say, well, John was weird, right? He didn't drink wine. He didn't eat bread. And the Pharisees said, he's got a demon. All right, so you might say, well, give me somebody different. And Jesus says, I came along. I did eat bread. I did drink wine. And you said of me, I'm a glutton and a drunkard, someone who likes to be around tax collectors and sinners. Jesus' saying is, don't think that you're rejecting the truth because of that person. You're rejecting the truth because you have an ax to grind with God. Nothing satisfies you. And then a verse that I love where he says, wisdom in verse 35, yet wisdom is justified by all her children. Uh, the wise life can look a number of different ways, can't it? As believers all bent on obeying the Word of God, all of us can live life a little differently, can't we? Wisdom has a lot of children. Some of you say, I'm going to be like John the Baptist, right? eat bread and drink wine, and you know what? That's fine. Others, you say, I'm gonna, I am going to eat bread. I am going to drink wine. That's fine too. Don't abuse it. Don't be a drunkard. But, but, but Jesus says wisdom's justified. We've got a lot of children here. They look a lot different, but they're all children of wisdom. In some ways, Jesus is saying, if you want to have your WWJD bracelet, you can say, what would Jesus do? Or what would John do? Either's fine. They look different, but they're fine, right? But just saying the Pharisees are a group, they've not repented, they've not recognized their sin, they don't recognize their need for grace and mercy. By contrast, Jesus then, beginning in verse 36, one of the Pharisees named Simon asked Jesus to come to his house, and he does. Now, one of the things that would be common, and this is, this is what, this story can be a bit confusing and weird to us because we don't know this element, but one of the things that would happen is if I invited you over to my house and somebody could just see you reclining at my table, others are welcome to join in. And that's what's weird about it. We, we think, often think, like if you invite somebody for dinner, you're not inviting others, but that's not the case here. And so what happens is Jesus comes into the house of Simon the Pharisee. Again, remember who the Pharisees were. Simon would be one of those who doesn't recognize his own sin, who doesn't see his need for grace and mercy, who has no need in his mind to repent of anything. And this woman comes in, and she begins weeping behind Jesus. And she begins crying, and as her tears touch his feet, she takes her hair, and she washes his feet with her tears in her hair. 
She takes an alabaster flask of ointment that she had brought with her, and she anoints Jesus' feet and begins wiping them and kissing his feet. And as she's doing this, Simon has a thought. And here's his thought. We read it in verse 39. And when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, he doesn't say this out loud, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. Now, I don't think he means a sinner because, like, everybody's a sinner, which is true. I think he means she is a notoriously bad sinner, probably a prostitute. And it's not the case then in the first centuries, prostitutes were like, you know, nice and good and a, a great career, right? Much like today. There's a woman who is pursuing sexual sin for a living. A woman who is debasing herself by her actions. No doubt her actions joining up and leading to the cause of many marriages dissolving. And so Simon's thinking, if you knew who that woman was, if you were really a prophet, Gosh, he would stop her from touching his feet. Interestingly, Simon's thinking that to himself. He doesn't say it out loud. And so Jesus says to Simon, Hey, Simon, I got something I want to say to you. Oddly enough, what Simon doesn't know is Jesus does know who the woman is, and he does know what Simon's thinking. <laughs> and so he says to Simon, Let me tell you a story. One guy owes a ton of money to a lender. Another guy owes a much smaller amount of money. But neither one of them can pay it back. And the lender forgives both their debts. Who loves him more? Simon answers, obviously, the guy that gets forgiven much is going to love more than the guy that was forgiven little. And Jesus says, that's right. You've answered rightly. And now I want you to assess what's going on here. When I came in, you invited me to your home. You, you showed me no hospitality. You, you gave me no water for my feet. I mean, Jesus would have been walking on these dusty feet. You could say, welcome to my home, Jesus. Here's some water. Wash your feet off. You've not done that. You show me no honor in that way. She has washed my feet with her tears. You, you didn't anoint my head with oil. That would have been a common thing to be done. We read in the book of Ecclesiastes, right? That, that, that you, when you go to a party, put oil on your head and dress up in white, right? Festive occasion. You, di you didn't do that. You didn't, you didn't treat me as your guest of honor by anointing my head with oil. But she has taken oil and anointed my feet. When I came in, Simon, you gave me no kiss. When we read in the New Testament, this is not common to our culture. In the New Testament culture, right, greet one another with holy kiss. Remember when Judas betrayed Jesus? He does it with a kiss. Why? Because that was a very subtle thing to do. It wouldn't have stood out. It wouldn't have been weird. It's not like Jesus was, you know, Judas is like, here he is, here he is, right? He's just doing something very common and betraying the Lord. Same thing the Pharisee could have done. He could have honored the Lord, just greeted him with a kiss. He doesn't do that. And Jesus says, yet this woman has not ceased kissing my feet from the time I came in. Now remember the story Jesus just told. And answer this. Simon, what does she understand that you don't? And Jesus says in verse 47, Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much. 
But he who has forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say, who among themselves, who is this that even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Simon's problem was not that, you know, it wasn't that, that, that he was actually better than this woman. His problem was that he didn't recognize that he was like her. He didn't recognize that he too was a sinner in need of repenting and finding grace and forgiveness from the Lord. And because he was unwilling to recognize his sin, because he was unwilling to humble himself and plead to the Lord for forgiveness, therefore, he remained in his place as an enemy of God under his judgment, distant from the Son. But because this woman, who really was a notorious sinner who really had a lot of sin in her life because she saw her need for sin and turned to Christ, she found forgiveness. And not only did she find forgiveness, but it transformed her. Because when you realize that you've been forgiven much, you love much. Brothers and sisters, what I want to say to all of us in this room is that none of us has been doomed to love little. Here's what I mean, as Here's what I mean. None of us fits the category of those who have been forgiven little and therefore love little. All of us have been forgiven much. The only reason your heart isn't stirred in great love for Jesus Christ, if it isn't, is not because you've been forgiven little. It's because you don't recognize you've been forgiven much. Because all of us have. And I like to think that one of the reasons we gather on Sunday mornings and most of us sing loudly, some of us raise our hands and it's clear we're all worshiping the Lord and delighting when we see things like, seeing things like my sin, not in part, but the whole is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. And that stirs our heart and love. I like to think, and I think it's true. The reason we do that, the reason we sing that way, the reason we love that truth is because we know I have so much sin and he has forgiven me all of it. And it makes us love him. And so what I want to plead with us to do this morning, all of us, is look at your sin and then, oh, look at the cross. And remember what God has done for us in Jesus Christ, his life, his death, his resurrection, so that we might be forgiven. And then let that stir in us love for him and obedience to him. After all, look at all of chapter 7 and look at who Jesus is, the one who has power and compassion the one who has come to save, the one whom we are privileged to tell others about, and the one who forgives and transforms us. So the way we're going to end our service this morning is by coming to the table. And first, we're going to take a moment of silence. Now, in that moment of silence, uh, perhaps you want to use that moment of silence just to just reflect, maybe thank God for forgiveness of sins. Or if you haven't recognized that, if you're not a believer this morning, 
I want to plead with you to recognize your sin and look to Christ in repentance and faith. Those who come to him, he will receive. I want to plead with you to place your faith in Jesus Christ. And if you do that, tell someone. And then make that public by being baptized. And as you're baptized, brought into a local church who can love you and care for you and pray for you and then teach you to obey everything that Jesus has commanded. If you're not a believer, I, want to, I would love to talk to you after the service. Your neighbor would love to talk to you after the service. I want to plead with you, though, if you're, if you're not a believer, to place your faith in Jesus Christ now. And then once you're baptized, come to the table with us where we eat of the bread and drink from the cup, remembering that Christ gave his body and shed his blood for us. But if you are a believer, you profess your faith in Christ, you're a member of a gospel preaching church, then after this moment of silence, we're going to come to the table just row by row. First row followed by second row. You'll exit to the outside, come around. You'll get one stack of two cups. The bottom one has bread, the top one has juice. You'll take the one stack of two cups, return to your seat to the inside of the row, and then once we've all received the bread and the juice, we'll drink together, we'll eat together, and uh, we will celebrate together and give thanks to God together for what he's done for us in Jesus Christ. If you're to my left in the overflow section, we'll have a pastor there who can serve you uh, as well. But let's take a moment of silence now as the pastors get in place, as the band comes and gets in place, because as we come, we're going to sing of the amazing grace of God. So let's take a moment of silence as we come to the table this morning. <laughs>